all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit provides information on how you can lead a healthy lifestyle. I'm the host, Josie Bidwell. Search for and subscribe to Southern Remedy on any podcasting app to not miss any episode. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy Women's Health, where we discuss issues involving women's health. I'm Dr. Jasmine Kinsey, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC, and today's topic is going to be Irritable Bowel Syndrome. Um, and I have on with me today Dr. Elizabeth Payne, who's an Associate Professor of Medicine at UMMC and gastroenterologist, but she also serves as the Deputy Associate Chief of Staff for Special Care at here um, at the VA Hospital as well. So happy Friday to everyone, and it is I, I know everyone knows how hot it is. Um, and so doing our best to stay cool in all these record temperatures. So I hope everyone is out there staying hydrated and hopefully in some air condition. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking time out of your day uh, to hang out with us on the show and teach us a little bit. So if you don't mind just telling the callers a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, um, as thank you for your the kind introduction. Um, as Dr. Kinsey mentioned, I do work at the VA, and I spend a lot of time at university as well. I really enjoy taking care of general GI issues, of which IBS is very, very, very common. Something I see a lot. So, I'm excited to talk to you about uh, about and learn learn with you and uh, and explain a lot of things about this. So, um, other than that, my I have a husband who's also uh, on staff at university, and I have three kiddos at home. So, lots of fun going on in all areas of life. Yep, we were actually just kind of catching up on the kids before uh, before the show started because it's 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 pure chaos. Um, <laughs> yes, I'd like to say organized chaos, no. but not really, you know. But there's never a dull moment um, in any day. But but we're gonna dive right in. As I mentioned before, this is one of the most common things um, that we see in clinic and in primary care. I get a lot of questions about about this. So. Elizabeth, do you mind just taking a second to tell us what we mean by irritable bowel syndrome? What is that? So irritable bowel syndrome is a collection of symptoms that we see, um, and they can all be slightly different in slightly different patients, but it's chronic abdominal pain that is associated with a change in bowel habits. Well, what does that mean? That means that, that there's some alternation between constipation and diarrhea and back and forth, um, as well as um, a component of belly pain or abdominal pain. And it is super, super, super common. So this is something I imagine a lot of our callers are probably going to have uh, have and or have questions about. 
Definitely. And it's such a broad topic. So when we say abdominal pain, you know, a lot of people, our minds go, oh, my gosh, am I having appendicitis? Am I having, um, you know, something kind of big going on? And do I need to go to the ER? So tell me a little bit about this kind of abdominal pain that you often see with irritable bowel. So this is a crampy type of abdominal pain. Um, It is also it can be anywhere. It's more common in the lower um, parts of your abdomen, um, right above your groin area, um, which is the creases uh, right at the top of your legs. And so it's more typical there. It can be in other places. The other thing about it, though, it's not typically a a very sharp pain. um, And it's a lot of times it's associated with meals. And it almost always is associated with bowel movements or need to have a bowel movement. Gotcha. And as you say that, you also kind of mentioned in your description, like altered bowel habits. What does that mean? Because we know that that our bowel habits change day to day anyway. So how do I know when it's abnormal? So there are very specific definitions for diarrhea and constipation <laughs> from a GI standpoint. But the, the quick and dirty of it is if you are having a lot of constipation for several days in a row and a lot of diarrhea after that, or going back and forth a lot, a lot more so than you typically do, of course, everybody's going to have some alteration based on what they're eating, what they're drinking, what they're doing. Are you exercising? All of those kind of things can alter bowels. But if you're having a consistent, you know, switching back and forth um, fairly quickly, those kind of things, then it may be that you have something like irritable bowel syndrome. Gotcha. And and we also we always kind of talk as we're talking to our trainees or even just like your family members. There are like to me two populations that become very like hyper focused on bowel movements, and that's parents have had like newborn babies and they're just really like stressed out about how many bowel movements they have. Mm-hmm. And then once you get a little bit older, like my older patients are very, very concerned if they've been having a particular bowel habit for, you know, the past 20 years, if things change up, they're like, oh no, what's going on? This is not quite right. Um, and I feel a lot of it is, I don't know, a cultural that everyone feels like we have to go every day. Um, yes. And do, so do we have to go every day? No, we do not have to go every day. That is an old wife's tale. Um, the 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 one thing that I would say is that if you have been saying every other day for years, and then you all of a sudden start having you know um, either every you know twice a week or something every third day every fourth day or you're going to a lot of diarrhea so you're going like five six times a day then that is something that maybe need evaluation if it's a consistent thing um, of course you know somebody's diet can can alter things like that but. No, you do not have to go every day. In fact, it doesn't even meet the con- the constipation definition until you haven't gone less than twice a week. Gotcha. But that is one thing that I just can't seem to <laughs> drive home for people is they're like, I'm not going every day. I'm supposed to go every day. Um, and so it's OK. Everybody's different. As I as y'all probably hear me say every week, you know, not everybody follows the book. So it's OK if that's normal for you um, in general. So what is there something that puts somebody at increased risk of irritable bowel syndrome or what what do we normally see that what people do we see this in? So one of the more common things that we can see it in is people who've had um, some kind of um, 
basically a gastroenteritis or a stomach bug. We can see this in patients um, who have had a stomach bug and then they these bowel patterns or these changes kind of persist. Um, so that is certainly something that we can see. Um, as far as other patients who may have this, um, patients who have more of a tendency um, toward having anxiety, depression, those kind of things, um, that can also, uh, there's been studies looking at uh, irritable bowel syndrome in patients who have those conditions and there tends to be more um, association between um, those conditions and irritable bowel syndrome. Also, patients who have um, sleep problems, um, have a lot of trouble sleeping well, um, those also can predispose you or make you more likely to have irritable bowel syndrome. That doesn't mean that if you have any of these other conditions, you're going to automatically have it, but it's just that we see those more commonly in patients with irritable bowel syndrome. And that's true as as you talk about like kind of anxiety um, and depression and some of those other kind of like psychosocial or psychological factors. I think about the person that, granted, a little bit different, but how much our gut has to do with our brain and people Mm -hmm. don't realize that. But, you know, the people that get like a little bit queasy before a test or like, you know, have to go to the bathroom right before a test or your, you know, your stomach's not right when you're nervous about things. And so there's so much that connects our brain to the gut, you know? Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, when I'm training trainees, I explain to them that probably two-thirds of their medical school class um, is has some kind of element of irritable bowel syndrome <laughs> because we tend to be a little bit higher-strung folks who um, who have trouble when we don't get it quite exactly right and things like that. So I'm like, it's very, very, very common amongst the general population, but I think amongst folks who um, have very high-stress jobs, it's even higher. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, as I mentioned before, it's so when we talk about it, it's such a broad topic to talk about. But um, my understanding is we often break it down into different types um, yes. of irritable bowel. So tell us a little bit about um, the different categories that people can fall into. Sure. So when you talk about the altered bowel habits part of it, that really is what defines the, the categories. So we've got the diarrhea predominant. So we call that IBS-D. We've got the constipation predominant, which is IBS. IBS-C, then we have the, the IBS mixed. And how are we going to distinguish mixed when we already know that you're kind of going back and forth anyway? Well, the way that's defined is that more than a quarter of the time, uh, you're going to have diarrhea and more than a quarter of the time, you're going to have constipation. And then in between, you're going to have no, basically normal. So and then there's the undifferentiated type, which I almost never use, but you do read about that in textbooks. Gotcha. And that and and I understandably so a lot of my patients that suffer from um, irritable bowel syndrome, it's frustrating, particularly the mixed type, because you get backed up and then you're trying to do something to go and then you you overshoot, as I would say, and then you're miserable for those days. And so you almost feel like your life is like a constant balance um, between that. So it'd be pretty distressing. Absolutely. And it's something where you really need to work with your healthcare providers in order to try to find the best regimen for you. So one of the things that I talk to my patients about all the time is that what works for me, what works for you may not be the same thing. And because there is so much variability um, in this giant general type disorder where there's lots of different ways it can be seen. I know. And and like I said, that can definitely make it more stressful. And and we know that this is often more common in women. Yes. Do we know why? <laughs> I think some of it may have to do with um, 
one of the things that's being looked at but is not being proven yet, it has to do with the gut microbiome. So big medical term for, you know, the bacterial balance in your gut. You have billions of bacteria in your gut, but when the balance gets off, sometimes it can trigger it. And so women and men have different bacterial balances. So I think that's some of it. Also, um, hormonal. You know, there's definitely uh, women, we have different hormonal pathways, regulations than um, our male colleagues and friends and family. And I think that that likely plays a role as well. And so we're going to go ahead and move to our first caller for this morning's segment. We have Alice and Macomb. Good morning, Alice. Good morning. How are you this uh, morning? I don't know. I, I guess you said we're sitting still sometimes. Uh, I didn't get it all that you all see. I've been having that uh, uh, pain in the bottom of my stomach on the right side, kind of like what you were saying. And the sign out is uh, a domino, A-O-R-T-I-C on a rhythm. Miss Alice, I didn't hear the very last thing you said. You said it was abdominal and you started spelling it. I didn't hear it. No, uh, the middle one, the middle one, I, I, I can't say it. That's why I said it. The middle, which is A-R-O-T-I-C aneurysm is the last word. Is it an aortic aneurysm? I really don't know. It's been at the bottom of my stomach, so they sent me to a surgery for a heart doctor. I'm wondering why I'm having a heart trouble that way down there. So he said it's pretty small and he'll see me in three years. How how often do it grow? How how often do can you repeat the last part? How soon do it do it grow fast? Do it grow fast or just a slowly Oh, so so most likely. So a lot of people that have I'm a, and I hope I've got this correct, but I'm thinking you're referring to um, an abdominal aortic aneurysm or something of that nature. <laughs> That's it. That's, That's it. it. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. And so interestingly enough, that typically does not cause pain in a lot of patients. It's sometimes, you know, you're getting worked up for other things. And when we do different images trying to figure out, you know, what is going on, we can find those aneurysms. And when we do images of those aneurysms and aneurysms and tests, we can determine the size of those. Um, and oftentimes, based on the size, it tells us if we can watch those um, or if we need to intervene quicker. So it sounds like probably based on your size, it's safe for us to just monitor it. And in the intervals that we monitor it, again, are based on the size. So some people come back in a year for repeat pictures. Some people come back in a couple of years for repeat pictures. So I don't think that's probably what's causing your abdominal pain. I think they might have just found it while they were looking for the reasons, if that makes sense. I had a CT scan and something else happened for a long time. I didn't know what kind of, I mean, uh, diarrhea was. I had a running bowel and it had started the last two weeks in May up until about a couple of weeks or so ago it got numb. So I just figured since I wouldn't. I just had to run and they say, oh, diarrhea. But that long. Gotcha. Are you still hey, have, having that problem? Oh, no. We done got back to normal. That'll be the last two weeks in May when it started. May, June, July. In the last two days, a week or so, we done got back normal. And I don't feel as bad as I used to. Well, that's a good thing. 
I got constipation problems too. Been having it ever since seventy-five, nineteen seventy-five. Oh my, that's a long time. I'm seventy-five years old now, so. Well, good, Miss Alice. I ho- I'm happy that you're feeling much better, um, and and we're happy you called us in this morning. So you have a great Friday, okay? You too. Thank you all too. Bye. You're Thank welcome. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Well, yes, and, and that's interesting. Um, thanks, Miss Alice, for her call, because oftentimes, you know, in the workup of abdominal pain, and I'm sure um, Elizabeth sees this a lot, that we all, oftentimes what we call what we find incidental findings. So you get a CT scan working up your constipation mm-hmm. and abdominal pain, and you find these other things. And, and, some, and oftentimes it's not really explains the pain, um, but it's kind of good we found it, so we know that we can kind of look at it and monitor it. Um, but Miss Alice did kind of bring up some, you know, some good points because it sounds like, you know, you can have those episodes like Elizabeth was saying, where we have bouts of diarrhea and bouts of constipation and, and ultimately resolve themselves. So how do I know the biggest thing, I guess, how that that's going on versus irritable bowel? What is the how do we diagnose irritable bowel? So the diagnosis, um, you would think that it would be, you know, this very extensive evaluation and workup. It's actually not. And so it's something where you go to your doctor and you talk through extensively with your history and all. So if you think you may have this, it's something where it would be a good thing to kind of keep track of your of your stool frequency over a period of time and maybe bring a stool diary to your uh, physician. You also may want to look at your diet as well in in, in reference to um, what kind of symptoms you're having. So as far as the actual diagnosis, though, it is um, based on your history and physical exam with a couple of things ruled out. If you've got any features that are more worrisome for something like cancer or other things like that, irritable bowel syndrome is not a cause of cancer, though. So I wanted to reiterate that because that question comes up a lot. So um, but it's something where uh, in order to meet the diagnostic criteria, which is how we really should be diagnosing things, you have to have a change in your um, in your bowels, uh, either di- more diarrhea, more constipation or going back and forth, as we talked about. And you have to have abdominal pain. Generally, we don't diagnose this until it's been going on for at least three, if not more months. And so this is not something where if you um, if you ate something and you didn't feel good for a couple of weeks, we don't typically diagnose you with irritable bowel syndrome. It's probably just related to your diet and has to work its way through your system. Yep. And that's what makes it challenging. I think I feel each time I tell my patients, like, just make a diary. I think people get a little bit frustrated, but I tell them all the time, like, I can't tell you what I wore on Monday, let alone like what I ate last time my belly hurt, you know? And so it's so much can, um, we can find out so, so much information if we just write it down and kind of see those patterns and, and, um, see how often we're having those symptoms. Well, and the other thing that's helpful with that, too, is it can kind of help you figure out some of the the things that we do for irritable bowel syndrome are related to changing your diet. And so if you already know that a particular food is 
or type of food is making your symptoms worse, then we know that that's a good place to start with um, cutting that out or reducing it um, in order to see if that doesn't help your symptoms improve. Gotcha. So tell me a little bit about the workup. So, you know, I think a lot of my patients sometimes um, get a little bit frustrated because they feel like we should be doing more. So what does a workup look like for somebody for irritable bowel and who qualifies for that workup? So typically beyond having a very good um, internal medicine, family medicine provider um, that you sit down, you talk to, you need to go through your family history because if you've got family history of of certain things, then that kind of may lead the work up in a different direction. Um, As far as the testing, though, it's pretty minimal. Um, a lot less than than what patients uh, sometimes hope for or expect. But um, we will do a blood count, so looking to see if you've got um, anything like anemia, things like that. Um, We will do some stool testing uh, to look for anything infectious, anything that looks like it could be related to an inflammatory condition, those kind of things. Um, sometimes we'll do a blood test looking for celiac disease, which is um, basically an allergy to gluten. And then um, we will also occasionally do stool studies for um, particular types of infection. Uh, Giardia is one of the ones. It tends to, to occur in, in patients who have some kind of connection to a daycare or mm-hmm. um, have been camping recently, have been drinking creek water, things like that. So those are the initial things. Um, we also, of course, any good primary care doctor is going to make sure that you're up to date on screening. And um, so colon cancer screening, if you haven't had that recently, then you need to have that done, um, either a colonoscopy or a, a stool test, um, whatever um, method you and your doctor choose for you for that. If you have um, a constipation predominant, so if you have more trouble with the constipation, sometimes we'll just do an abdominal x-ray to look and see how much stool is in there. We can actually pull up in my clinic, sometimes we'll pull up the actual images and show you how much poop you've got in your bowels. And so that can uh, be something that we do. And then beyond that, that's really all we need for the initial evaluation. Beyond that, um, we look for anything that could be more concerning um, for something more worrisome. Again, irritable bowel syndrome is not, although it is very, um, it can be very painful, it can be very annoying, it is not um, something that leads to cancer and it doesn't um, lead to um, death or anything like that. And so um, but we need to rule out things that, that could lead to those kind of issues um, before we give you that diagnosis. And I also like to remind patients, because sometimes I'll get the phone call, like, I need to see a GI specialist right away. These are my symptoms. And so a lot of times I really try to encourage my patients to go to your primary care doctor first, because a lot of the, the some of the workup that you just listed can happen within your primary care office without seeing the gastroenterologist. Absolutely. And in the state of Mississippi and in the U.S. in general, they are are limited numbers of GI doctors. Mm-hmm. And so um, I only say that to say that there may be quite a wait to get in with one. Um, and you could actually have already gotten relief with a really good primary care doctor. 
And, and exactly. And two, just thinking of the differential. So we talked a little bit about it being lower abdominal pain and being females. I tell us that there's other organs that are down there um, that we have to make sure. OK, sometimes and may not always be related um, to our bowels. You know, it can be other things that present similarly. Absolutely. Yes. I always recommend that, you know, we um, as internal medicine folks and as GI, you know, remember that and especially in our female patients you've got a uterus there in a lot of us um you know that's the the baby carrying organ you've got ovaries there the symptoms of ovarian problems can be very similar to what we see in irritable irritable bowel syndrome so there's a lot of things kind of jammed in a small area um down in the same area so we have to keep an open mind when we look at it um to make sure that you know um that it's we really nail down this diagnosis before we miss something else. Agreed. Well, we're going to move on to our next caller. We've got Lauren and Pilahatchee. Good morning, Lauren. Good morning. Um, I um, had a hysterectomy many years ago, but when I was uh, when I was a young youngish person, I was like mid thirties. Um, I started having kind of uh, irregular um, periods. And then that kind of turned into a thing where um, on the third day of my uh, periods, um, I would get horrible cramping, um, diarrhea, and nausea all at the same time and be, like, um, almost hemorrhaging. Um, and so I, um, I w- went to see doctors, obviously, and I wound up having... Um, it was a hemorrhagic cyst on my right ovary, so they had to go go in and remove it, and it was like uh, uh, attached to some endometrial kind of material between um, between the uterus and the colon. Um, so that was that was really weird, and I ha- I have had irritable bowel syndrome since then, but. Not that severe, and it was definitely hormonal with me. Yes, <laughs> back, absolutely. Back <laughs> um, and then the other question I had for you was, um, my mom had uh, Ogilvy syndrome mm-hmm. um, right at the end of her life, and I'm wondering, is that something that develops um, from irritable bowel syndrome at some point? Not typically. Um, Ogilvy syndrome, for for uh, our callers who may not know what that is, um, that is where you basically get the motility. So as stool and, and everything that you eat goes through your colon, um, it should squeeze um, from top to bottom um, in order to try to move everything through. Well, what happens with Ogilvy's is some of that squeeze gets disordered. And then you end up getting lots of distension. So the bowels get um, swollen pretty large. And then you end up with constipation and then areas of swollen um, swollen bowel. So not typically um, doesn't usually come from irritable bowel syndrome. We more typically see the Ogilvy's syndrome in folks who have either had some kind of um, surgery uh, in the area of the intestines, um, so lower abdominal um, pelvic type surgery. The other thing we see it in is, is people who um, are have limited mobility. So a lot of my patients, um, especially my VA patients, 
Um, if they are toward the end of their life and they're not able to move around as much as they are, it's more common in those patients who can't get up and, and use the gravity and use everything moving through their gut like normal in order uh, to have good bowel movements. So not really, re- in some ways, I guess, a little bit related, but but IBS is not considered one of the things that leads to Ogilvy syndrome. Well, that's probably pretty good. Uh, she did have parkinson's too so maybe maybe it's something definitely we see that very commonly in parkinson's disease with ogilvy's because parkinson's and some of the medicines lead to constipation and slowing of the gut along with a lot of other things but um and then that can lead to ogilvy's for sure oh okay well that was very interesting thank you so much for the information you're very welcome thanks for calling in okay thank you bye-bye bye-bye and, and Elizabeth, that's crazy because that was perfect timing as I was just saying, start with your primary care provider because not all lower abdominal pain um, is our bowels. And so, and Lauren was an excellent example of that, that, you know, there are other things there, even, you know, having had a hysterectomy, you know, you still have your ovaries there, you still um, have the cyst, hemorrhagic cysts, mm-hmm. you can get... Um, you know, ovarian torsion, twisting of the ovary. So lots of things that, you know, can present with abdominal pain that's not irritable bowel syndrome. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I always tell when I'm training other, um, you know, more junior doctors, especially about GI, that we have to keep an open mind because I have ordered more GYN evaluations from my GI clinic than I would have thought uh, 10 years ago when I started practicing. <laughs> from MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy Women's Health, where we discuss issues involving women's health. I'm Dr. Jasmine Kinsey, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. And today I have on with me Dr. Elizabeth Payne, who is an Associate Professor of Medicine at UMC and a gastroenterologist. And so we have learned a lot this morning about irritable bowel syndrome. We've learned about diagnosing it. We've now learned about the workup and then knowing that not all abdominal pain is related to the gut and just kind of remembering that in our workup. But we haven't really gotten the opportunity to tell people how do we fix this how do we get some relief so there fortunately there are some great things and a lot of the things that we can do for those of y'all who may not love taking medicine um, can be lifestyle related so uh, that's a good thing to remember Um, one of the first things that I I do when I see patients who I see a lot of patients with irritable bowel syndrome is to really sit down and discuss which symptom is bothering you the most Um, And then really, let's focus on that part of it. We can try to treat it all at the same time, but some of the medicines that we use for some of the symptoms may may affect um, the function of other of the symptoms or may make them a little worse. And so I really try to focus on that. Um, It's very important to have a good relationship, open relationship with your physician or your nurse practitioner provider so that you can really discuss these things because a lot of it is coming, it comes down to us reassuring you, um, as well as trying to treat these bothersome symptoms. So one of the things that I always focus on first is besides whichever symptom it is that's bothering folks the most is to sit down and look at diet because diet is something that we all have to eat. Um, we all may not eat exactly what we should all the time. And there's a couple of different diet um, methods that we can try for irritable bowel syndrome. So 
One is the more traditional irritable bowel syndrome diet. So this um, is where we tend to uh, reduce the amount of fat in our diet. Well, why does that matter? Because fat tends to sit in our gut and it doesn't move through as much. And so it can result in distension and more discomfort. Because one of the the big things that happens with irritable bowel syndrome is that um, when you get stretch of your gut, Folks who have irritable bowel syndrome are actually going to experience pain at a lower threshold than patients um, who don't have that. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you think about a balloon and say I were going to put um, a balloon uh, in your esophagus in order to stretch something. Well, uh, because you have a stricture or something like that. So the the level at which I have to blow up the balloon in order to cause pain is actually going to be at a lower level in patients who have irritable bowel syndrome than somebody who doesn't. So that means that there really is um, what's, and this is the fancy medical term for that is visceral hypersensitivity. That means that you actually experience the discomfort at a lower threshold of distension and things than folks who don't have this. Well, why am I mentioning all this? Because some of the treatments that we focus on are things that reduce distension. So we look at gas producing foods. I think we all know that things like beans and broccoli um, cause almost everybody to have some gas. Um, But there are other foods that can as well, certain fruits and things like that. So um, amongst the the diets that we look at, I briefly mentioned the strict um, IBS diet, and that is where we reduce fat Um, We look at what types of fiber people are getting, soluble versus insoluble. Mm -hmm. Look at caffeine. How much caffeine are you drinking? Um, What kind of form of caffeine are you drinking? Are you drinking large amounts of soda that has lots of bubbles in it or carbonation? Um, Are you drinking lots of coffee? Um, And then look specifically at foods that can cause increased distension, gas, those kind of things. Um, That's one one of the things that we'll do. Um, We'll also another thing we'll recommend is to avoid um, large meals because your body has a hard time, especially with irritable bowel syndrome, really digesting larger meals. So you're going to be better off eating more frequently smaller meals in general. Um, So that's one dietary thing that we can do. Another one is that's been really popular, um, and I'm not going to tell you the big medical term. It's the low FODMAP diet. The gist of this diet is you do have to cut out quite a bit of things. Um, You exclude gas-producing foods, but you also cut out other things like gluten, dairy, um, and some certain fruits and things. So this can be pretty challenging, but man, if the, if, Amongst my patients who've been able to really do the low FODMAP diet, it works. It And there's good clinical trial data for it. So if you're really miserable, um, that definitely may be something to try. So generally what we do for that diet is we'll do six to eight weeks of the diet. And then provided that the symptoms are, are either resolve or a lot better, then we start reintroducing some of those foods um, to see which one it is that's really triggering it um, gotcha. for your IBS. And the FODMAP, just for people that want to Google it after this, is F-O-D-M-A-P. Yes. Um, so if you Google FODMAP, F-O-D-M-A-P, you'll find a lot of information and details as far as like what all the, what are all the letters, I guess. I can so it's fermentable oligo, um, I can't remember the M-A-P, but it's like this big medical term of all of of different compounds that are mm-hmm. in these foods. 
So, but if you type in FODMAP, um, I do this almost every clinic and print out some patient information mm-hmm. um, for the low FODMAP diet. You're going to look at it and wonder what in the world you're going to eat. But um, but you can it you can be successful for it, and it's only eight weeks. So um, if you're if things are really bad, that may be a really good option for you. Um, nutrition, if you have access, if your primary care physician um, or provider has access to a nutrition referral, if you're thinking about doing the low FODMAP diet, um, our nutrition colleagues can be a huge positive mm-hmm. resource for that. My joke with it, so my funny story on the FODMAP diet. So one of the things on there is um, the uh, the sugar alcohols. And yes. so people don't realize that. And a lot of these diets that people are on, um, so sugar alcohols are essentially like something that makes things taste sweet, but you're not having to deal with real sugar. Um, and so a lot of your sugar-free candies and things like that have them. But if you ever read the label, it's like can cause diarrhea and all those things. And so my funny story to that is we have chocolate covered sugar free almonds that are full of of sugar alcohols. And I usually leave them on the top shelf. And of course, the kids just love them because they still taste like real chocolate because they're chocolate covered almonds. And one day, my youngest two who are like partners in crime got to the sugar free um chocolate covered almonds and we had a lot of diarrhea going on at the house and no one would admit what they did but I know what they did because A there were less almonds in the package and B it shows that it really is a pretty significant side effect so a lot of people that do like the Atkins diet Mm -hmm. or low carb diet those little desserts that they have for for people have those sugar alcohols in it so I have people that'll kind of go on these diets and then they're having changes in their bowel movements and all these kind of things and they're like what is going on and I'm like it is it is that yes and patients who are diabetic but who are sweet lovers uh-huh. a lot of times they will also reach for those um, those different products and there's multiple different sugar alcohols so it can be hard to tell on the label if you're just reading the ingredients uh, as to exactly which ones have have what so yes absolutely um, that was a great point if you're on any of the diabetic sweet products those can certainly cause these symptoms and there used to be some chips a few years ago that had them in there too they were they have this olester compound and man those were definitely diarrhea in a bag um so avoid those kind of things yes and so it definitely shows you you know that that just to be mindful of what we're eating and what we're ingesting so sometimes we try to fix one problem (laughs) and we cause a whole nother one and i get patients in my clinic and they're like what's going on dr kenzie i'm falling apart and i'm like okay what what are we doing and um, so just those are just some things. But FODMAP, like you said, is an excellent diet. And a lot of people get good success and kind of are really able to pin down what can really help, ultimately help a lot of their symptoms. And one of the first things also that I will do before I even start FODMAP is to talk to patients about lactose. Lactose intolerance is super common. And in most patients, it's actually acquired, which means that you may have been OK with with, you know, drinking cow's milk dairy you know five years ago and then all of a sudden now you're having trouble with it and so 
one of the things that I'll tell people to do is, you know, hey, are you having a nightly ice cream and then you're you're having trouble after that? Well, it might be the lactose. So I actually recommend that that patients will go lactose free for a little while just to see if it makes a difference. Yep. It, it's, it's crazy. Our bodies are crazy things. Things that you did in the past, it really can change. Foods that used to not cause you a problem can out of nowhere, just like these people that develop their shrimp allergy or seafood allergy and they've eaten it all their life and then now we have an allergic reaction. Same thing happens with lactose as well and, and having trouble with our dairy products. We've talked a lot about the management, just some things we can do with our diet. Are there some medications that you recommend? Yes. So depending on, you know, when we started out talking about this, we talked about that most patients are going to be constipation predominant, diarrhea predominant, or somewhere in between. And so um, what you do for this is you actually try to fix the bowel pattern part of it because that can help. And then there's also separate things that we can do for the belly pain part of it. So in terms of the constipation, we use a lot of polyethylene glycol, otherwise known as Miralax, uh, especially in patients who have constipation. Um, why do we use that? Well, it actually works, um, for one thing. And second of all, if anybody has ever done a colonoscopy, you know that go lightly gallon you have to drink, um, or at least you have used to have to drink. Um, it is actually a cousin to Miralax. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is closely related. It's just um, there's some added electrolytes in the or a little bit extra salts and things um, in the Go Lightly. So it's a safe compound. We use it all the time. That tends to be what I use first after doing some fiber. Um, a lot of times in my patients, I'll encourage fiber first. And there's a lot of misconceptions about fiber that it only should be used for constipation. Not the case. It can be used for either. Um, And so I will use fiber in my patients who are going back and forth a whole lot. So the mixed group, I will use fiber first before doing anything else because it tends to even them out and and it and it resolves the issue that way without causing too much overshooting in one direction or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as other things for the diarrhea portion of it, I use a lot of loperamide, which is also known as Imodium. For that, um, we never want you to go over 16 milligrams or eight pills a day of that because it can have some heart side effects. Um, But I use a lot of loperamide for that. And then there's some prescription things that um, you can go to once you have, quote unquote, failed other options. So there are some um, chloride channel activators. So you may have heard of Amatiza or Lenzes or uh, Placanatide, which is uh, Trulance. All of those things, generally, you only insurance only covers those after you have um, had continued symptoms despite trying a bunch of other things. So that's for constipation. For diarrhea, it sometimes can be a little more challenging um, because Mm -hmm. we don't have as good of a treatment for that. So we will use um, some some medications like uh, cholestopol, which is actually a cholesterol medicine, but people have noticed that it actually causes constipation. So we will use that sometimes. Um, And then there's um, some stronger prescription things that we will occasionally use that are so used used so infrequently, it's probably not even worth mentioning. Um, And then talking about the the abdominal pain or the belly pain, this tends to be one of the things that really is bothersome to folks Mm because it can be painful. Oh, yeah. 
Um, so antispasm medicines are kind of the, the first line therapy for what we use, because what happens a lot of times with irritable bowel syndrome, not only do you um, experience pain at a lower threshold, there's also a lot of spasming of the bowel, which is uncomfortable. And so if you can kind of slow that down, um, that can help. So we will use um, dicyclamine, which is also known as bental mm-hmm. or hyoscyamine, also known as Levson for that. Occasionally, we will also use um, medicines that are labeled as antidepressants. So amitriptyline, it's an old, old, old medicine we'll we'll use sometimes um, in irritable bowel syndrome, diarrhea predominant. Uh, And occasionally we'll use other medicines that are traditionally used for uh, depression that actually help with this. And we're not using them for that reason. So I always explain to the patient that the label may say something about depression. Exactly. (laughs) We don't think you have that necessarily. We're using it for a different reason. Yep. And, and and you bring up an excellent point in that we always have to like, I have to remind my patients like, no, I don't secretly think you're depressed and try to slip a medicine in on you. Like, I, you know, we can use it. Uh, interestingly enough, as we've mentioned in other episodes, antidepressants have so many um, different roles um, throughout. But we are, I mean, this hour really flew by on us. Uh, Elizabeth, any kind of last minute thoughts or things that you want to share with the, our, our listeners about irritable bowel? I think the most important thing, we've said this a couple of times, um, is that you really need to have a good relationship with your primary care provider. Mm-hmm. Um, sit down and talk to them about it. Um, our primary care providers in the state of Mississippi overall do a really good job and um, talk to them about these symptoms. And then if, if you're not able to get relief with your primary care provider, then we are happy as gastroenterologists to take care of you and help you get some relief that way. And then the only other thing, and I, again, I've mentioned this a few times too, is irritable bowel syndrome is uncomfortable, it's painful, it's annoying, but it but the good part about it is it's not going to lead to cancer and it's not one right. of the conditions that increase your risk of death. And so um, it's as frustrating as it is, it's something that um, is not going to kill you. So remember that. Yes, because, you know, as we know, it's so many, the, the world we live in, it's terrifying to know what these things can and lead to. Well, thank you so much for coming to hang out with us, Elizabeth, today. This is Southern Remedy Women's Health, a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, and is funded in part by the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from listeners like you. I'm Dr. Jasmine Kinsey, and join us next Friday at 11 for Southern Remedy Women's Health on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.